All right, to get a running start, Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and so many blind that he gave sight to. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now starting at verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitude concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In this extended section, Jesus is explaining to us a little bit about the ministry of John the Baptist. And it was prompted by the question that came to Jesus from John the Baptist, from two of John's disciples. They wanted to know, Jesus, are you the coming one or should we wait for another? And we talked about the answer to that last week. Last week we saw that the answer to that question was essentially this. Jesus said, yes, I am the coming one. Look at my works. I'm doing the works that were prophesied that the Messiah would do, especially in the book of Isaiah. So yes, I am the coming one, John, but, but blessed are you if you're not offended because of me. Because, John, I understand that it might be a difficult thing for you to know that you are still in prison and that I haven't used my messianic glory to free you. And, John, I understand that this might be an offense to you, but you're blessed if you're not offended to me. Then, having addressed these messengers, having answered John's question, Jesus now speaks to the multitude. And he wants to teach the multitude something about this great man, John the Baptist. And he begins by asking a simple question. Verse 24 What did you go out to see when you went to look at John the Baptist? You see, anybody who saw John the Baptist at work and his ministry, which, by the way, must have been something so remarkable there on the shores of the Jordan River, there in the wilderness of Judea, to see John doing his work of preaching, to see him boldly call men and women to repentance and see, see them respond radically by receiving this, this work of baptism. It must have been remarkable to see. And she said, well, what do you expect? When you went out to look at, at John the Baptist, what, did you look for a man who wears nice clothes? Did you look for the soft man, the man accustomed with luxuries? No, you didn't go out to see that. That's not the kind of man he is or was. John the Baptist was a prophet. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus piles it even higher when he says in verse 27 that he was the prophesied prophet there announced in the book of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Did you see it there in verse 27? Here's the quotation from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now that's pretty special, don't you think about John the Baptist? Not only was he a prophet, but he was a prophesied prophet. He was a prophet who was announced specifically that he would have this glorious work of announcing the work of the Messiah, being the forerunner to the Messiah. He fulfilled that glorious office. And this one way to understand that there's a very real sense in which John the Baptist was more glorious than any of the other prophets. I mean, think about the character of his ministry. John was steady. He wasn't easily shaken like a reed. John was sober in that he lived a disciplined life. He wasn't in love with the luxuries and the comforts of the world. John was a servant in that he was a prophet of God. John was sent in that he was a special messenger of the Lord. John was special in that Jesus said that he could be considered as the greatest one under the old covenant. And finally, I would say that John was second to even the least person in the kingdom of God under the new covenant. Now think about those last two points that I made. Jesus said in verse 28 something very radical. Look at it with your own eyes. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's almost crazy talk. Ezekiel, no. Isaiah, no. Jeremiah, no. Uh, Amos, no. Nathan, who rebuked a king to his face, no. All of those men's glorious prophets. But John the Baptist had a unique role in God's plan of redemption because all of those men had the privilege of saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And what did John the Baptist have the privilege of saying? The Messiah is here. They said he was a greater prophet because he had a greater message. Because as wonderful as the message is to say that the Messiah is coming, it's an even greater message to say that he's here. And that was John's special gift. Now you say, wow, John was this most amazing guy under the old covenant, the highest among all the prophets. And then Jesus says something that it just, it it challenges us. Look at it, verse 28, or 29 actually there. 28, he says, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than, than he. How can you even say that? How can you or I be considered to be greater than this mighty prophet who moved a nation to repentance? How can you and I be considered to be greater than a prophet who said the Messiah is here and was a prophesied prophet? I'll tell you what, you are greater. You are greater. If you're least in the kingdom of God, if you are the least part of the new covenant community, you are greater than John because he belonged to the old covenant community. And as great as a prophet John was, John lived and died before the completion of Jesus' work at the cross and in the empty tomb. He never lived on the other side of those glorious words that we live on the other side of, those wonderful words, it is finished. And when you live on the other side of those words, it makes all the difference. John could announce together with other prophets, the Messiah is here, forgiveness is coming. We say forgiveness can be received right now. Receive it. That is a greater privilege. That is a greater work. Now, verse 29. 
And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. But the, the normal people, the regular people, you know, folks like us, the, the, the just sinners, people who need God, they heard what Jesus said about John the Baptist, and they said, wonderful, we want to be a part of that kingdom of God that you speak of, Jesus. But what did the religious hierarchy, what did the religious leaders say? Well, it says right here that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You see, they didn't want to have anything to do with the radical ministry of John the Baptist, with a man who radically called a nation to repentance, with a man who looked at good religious people and said, you're a bunch of snakes. They didn't want to have anything to do with a man like that. And so they didn't receive the goodness of not only John the Baptist's ministry, but of Jesus' approval of John the Baptist's ministry. So now Jesus is going to nail him on this point. Look at it here, verse 31. And the Lord said, by the way, I just have to pause right there. And the Lord said, Luke very deliberately gives Jesus the title here as Lord in the same way, in the same phrasing that would let any thoughtful reader of the Old Testament in those days know that Jesus is God. That's what he's saying here. The way he phrases it, the way he structures it, he's pointing out, this is God speaking. And the Lord said, verse 31, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. I like this little section because to me it has the feeling of Jesus just getting something off his chest. He's like calling out the guys who were so critical of John the Baptist's ministry and who were also critical of Jesus' ministry. And it's almost like it occurs to Jesus in a flash of insight. And I'm sure Jesus had this figured out long before. It's just because things have to come to me in a flash of insight that I sort of impose this on Jesus. That it hits Jesus to say, you know what? These guys who don't like John the Baptist, they don't like me either. What's wrong with them? Look at how Jesus breaks it down. He says, verse 31, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? He thought about the people in his current generation and how they were uncertain and choosy in receiving God's message and their messengers. No, I don't like that messenger. No, I don't like that messenger. As a matter of fact, he puts it this way. And it seems like in verse 32, Jesus is quoting almost a children's rhyme that was present in his day, you know, sort of a, you know, ring around the rosy kind of thing that we would say today. Verse 32. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned for you and you did not weep. You see, the idea is that those who have a heart to criticize will find something to criticize. These guys wouldn't be pleased with either the ministry of Jesus nor with the ministry of John. You see, the point is very clear. I like what uh, McLaren said about this. He said, if the message is unwelcome, nothing that the messenger says is going to be right. So, what did they say about John the Baptist? You see that in verse 33? 
Look at what they said about John the Baptist. They said of him, he's got a demon. Oh, isn't that a nice analysis of John the Baptist? You look at this man, because we all know it's the work of demons to lead people in radical repentance. But that's what they said of John the Baptist. Oh, look at that man. He has a demon. That's what they said. And then what did they say of Jesus? Look at it in verse 34. They called Jesus a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now listen, they're really laying it on Jesus. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus was not describing his own ministry here. Jesus was not describing himself as a glutton and a wine-bibber. And I don't know exactly what a wine-bibber is, but it sounds bad. Jesus wasn't describing himself as a glutton or a wine-bibber. He was saying, this is what they, the religious hierarchy, it's what they say about me. Now, they didn't like John because John was so austere. They don't like Jesus because they say of Jesus, oh, he's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, by the way, notice this. Would anybody ever have said that about John? That John the Baptist was the friend of tax collectors and sinners? No, John would be likely to punch out a few tax collectors and sinners if they didn't repent. I mean, John was just that kind of guy. But Jesus, no, this was their criticism of him. He's the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Again, I want to call your mind to what I just said a moment ago. Jesus didn't say this of himself. He told us what the religious leaders said about him. And I'll just say it. For the most part, especially in the way that the religious leaders meant it, they were wrong. Was it true that John the Baptist had a demon? The correct answer to that is no. Was it true that Jesus was a glutton or a wine-bibber? No, that's not true. And was it true at least in the sense that the religious leaders said it, that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. No, it was not true in the sense that they meant it. But this is what you and I know. There is another sense in which it's entirely true. And we're saved by the fact that Jesus is indeed a friend to tax collectors and sinners. Well, let's consider both sides of the equations. In what way was it not true that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Well, he wasn't a friend of theirs in the sense that he was like them. He he wasn't uh, a friend of them in the sense that he helped them to commit their sins. Not at all. But that's what the religious leaders meant. They meant to just say, well, you're just like a tax collector and sinner because you're so friendly with them. But how is it true that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners? In the sense that he loved them. He did not despise them. He did not push them away. Do you understand that it was sort of a badge of honor among the religious leaders of that day for you to publicly despise and denounce and say how revolted you were by notoriously sinful people? That was held to be a badge of honor. Jesus didn't act like that. Everybody could see it. That when Jesus saw people who were particularly sinful, people who were particularly caught in the degradation of their sin, that Jesus' heart and compassion went out to them. 
Now, the religious leaders in their own hypocrisy, they look, well, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, there's a sense in which it's not true, but there's a sense in which that isn't gloriously true. He didn't despise them. He didn't push them away. He genuinely wanted to help them, and he wanted to rescue them from the shame of their sin, from the power of their sin, and from the penalty of their sin. Do you want to know how much Jesus loved sinners? He loved them so much that he would meet them where they were at, and then he would say, I want to transform your life so that you're no longer under the bondage of sin anymore. You ever see sometimes people marching in a protest march? They'll carry a sign and they'll say something like this. And sometimes it's people who deliberately adopt a very visibly um, unbiblical lifestyle. Let's just say that. They'll, They'll carry a sign and say, Jesus loves me just the way I am. Now, is that a true statement? And that's a, insofar as the statement is on the sign, it's a true statement. Jesus does love them just the way they are. And, and if you're here tonight and Jesus is speaking to your heart about your own sin, and you're realizing for the first time just how much you've rejected and how strongly you've pushed God away, He loves you. He cares for you. But let me tell you, He loves you and He cares for you so much that He doesn't want to leave you in your sin. He'll meet you right now in the condition that you're at. Right now where you're at. But he wants to grab a hold of your life and pour his transforming power and love into your life. He loves you enough to meet you where you're at, but he loves you too much to leave you where you're at. He wants to transform you. So actually, we turn this around and we say, what a beautiful title, Jesus. Jesus, there you are, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, look at this last verse in our section here, verse 35. Jesus says a statement that I wonder if people understand very often. Here's a statement. Wisdom is justified of her children. Do you know what that statement means? I love it because it sort of shows the pragmatic side to Jesus. Do you know what pragmatic means? It means that you're just interested in results. Does it work? And, and we don't have a purely pragmatic religion. We don't care. Listen, we don't say things like this. Listen, I don't care about theology. Just give me what works. No, we care about theology. We care about what's right and what's wrong. But we don't want to forget what Jesus said here. Wisdom is justified of her children. And this is what he means by this. He says that a wise man is proven to be wise by his wise actions. And Jesus especially had in mind here the wisdom to accept both Jesus and John the Baptist for what they were and what they were called to be. I mean, look at it. People criticize John, how easy it would be to criticize the ministry of John the Baptist. He dresses funny, he smells funny, he screams at people, he dunks them in water, he eats funny. Strange man! It'd be easy to criticize. But look, look at what he did. Look at how God used that man. Look at the anointing of God on his life. Look at the children, so to speak. I mean, the actions, the results of his life. And you go, there's a man of wisdom. And you might criticize Jesus. Look, Jesus seemed to be happy too much. He, he, he seemed to, you know, he, he didn't fast like all the followers of John. And he preached a message of love and joy. What, what is this business? You say, well, look, wisdom is justified of his children. Look at what he did. He taught and worked and loved and died like no one ever has. Wisdom is justified of its children. All right, so we have this exchange. Jesus and the religious leaders. 
Now, verse 36, the camera fades out of Jesus speaking to the multitude about John the Baptist. Now, we zero in with Jesus going into uh, enjoy an evening meal at the home of one of these religious leaders. And aren't you just kind of fascinated by this? That Jesus is going to sit down and have dinner with the Pharisee. Well, let's look at it right here, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. All right, you've heard me say it to you probably about a hundred times. When you read the Bible, it should be like a movie in your head. Come on now, let the movie run. Picture the scene here. Jesus is at the home of an influential religious leader, one of the Pharisees. Now, by the way, doesn't this show something wonderful in the heart of Jesus? That even though he could oppose the Pharisees, he didn't hate them. Yeah, I'll eat dinner with the Pharisee. Oh, sure, I've had a lot of tussles with the Pharisees. They've criticized me a lot. There's been a lot of, you know, of them, you know, getting at me and, and rebuking me and my disciples. But I don't hate them. I love them. Have dinner over to Pharisee's house. Thank you very much. I'd love to have dinner over to Pharisee's house. So he goes over to Mr. Pharisee's house, and there he is. He's having a nice meal with them. He wanted to have a closer, honest look at Jesus, we suppose this Pharisee did. And so he eats together with Jesus. And then what happens in the midst of this dinner? Well, I'm not going to get down on the floor and demonstrate it for you. But, you know, they didn't eat at a taller table the way we eat in our present day, where you would sort of sit down at a table like this, you know, and you have your uh, plate and your knife and your fork and you eat like this. They would eat reclining on cushions on the ground, leaning on their elbow. Uh, Typically, I think they would lean on their left elbow. And then they would eat off the table, a low table that would be in front of them. Well, when you do that, as you lay up against the table, your feet are sort of trailing off behind you. Apparently, what happened is in the midst of this fancy dinner that this Pharisee is giving for Jesus, and it wasn't just the Pharisee and Jesus, you would imagine there would be a few more people. I don't know if it was a big crowd or a small crowd, but there was some kind of crowd around the table. What happens in the midst of that? Verse 37 tells us that, behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner comes up to him. Now, who was this woman? Well, there are many people who try to make this woman Mary Magdalene. Can I just say, there's no evidence. There's no evidence to say that this was Mary Magdalene. There are other people who try to connect this event with an event towards the end of Jesus' ministry that's described in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where a woman called Mary of Bethany comes and anointed Jesus' feet in a similar fashion, though not exactly the same. Well, I think that these are two distinct events. And somebody might say, well, that's just foolish. How could there be two, you know, anointings of Jesus' feet in a similar manner? You know, one in an early part of his ministry and one in a later part of his ministry. How could this two? Listen, I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, we shouldn't be surprised 
that there were two anointings of Jesus' feet, two of these beautiful, passionate outpourings of love for Jesus, we should be surprised that there weren't 200 of them. For this man who loved like nobody else ever loved, this man who reached out and touched people in a way that nobody else ever did, this man who deserved such an outpouring of love, it's almost a crime against Jesus himself that this sort of lavish outpouring of love wasn't put upon him everywhere that he went. So it's entirely reasonable to think that the same kind of thing could have happened twice in the ministry of Jesus. But please understand, it wasn't just that a woman came up to Jesus and started anointing his feet with this fine oil. What does it say about the woman in verse 37? You saw it. It says that this was a woman who was a sinner. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible points that out. It means it more than just in the Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory kind of sense. It means it in a sense that says that she was a notorious sinner. She was in some way a scandal-touched sinner. Now, I have to be honest, if you look at the text, and you and I can both see it together, does it say in the text, what kind of sin that she was a sinner of. It doesn't say. But because she was a notorious sinner, almost all Bible commentators and teachers throughout the centuries have come to the idea that she was in some way a woman who was sexually immoral and notorious for her sexual immorality, that she was some kind of a prostitute, that she was some kind of a courtesan, a woman of easy virtue in some way or another. I can't say I like it, but I think it's very descriptive what John Trapp, the Puritan commentator, said about her. He called her a strumpet, a she-sinner, a hussy. God bless you, Puritan commentator John Trapp. Now let me say, if that was not her sin problem, I don't want to see the meeting between this woman and John Trapp up in heaven. You know, when it, when it comes to wiping away the tear from everybody's eye in heaven, it might be because she slaps John Trapp up in heaven and he has a tear to wipe away. But look, I, I just want you to entertain for the idea that probably so. Probably, we can't say with certainty, but probably what made this woman a notorious sinner in her town was that she was a woman. You know, look, I... I, I I'm a little struck by the fact that in our day and age, we speak so crudely about such things. There's a big part of me that longs for an earlier age where people spoke with greater decorum about such things. So if I just simply tell you that it's likely that she was reputed to be a woman of easy virtue, you know what I'm talking about. And I think about it, when I, when I read this text today, I couldn't help but be deeply touched because I think about the very difficult burden that women in our culture have to face today. And especially, though not exclusively by any means, but especially young women. Because I I think that in our present generation, there has been such an attempt to aggressively normalize debauchery and immorality among young women. Now, please, don't think for a moment that I'm, I'm letting off men on this at all. No. But 
But the idea of men's wickedness and debauchery in such areas has long been known and often spoken against. But can I say, there is a unique burden and pain that a woman has to face when she gives herself away so easily. And I think that this is what this woman was facing here. This is what she had experienced. And and I'll show you why in a few moments. But I believe, and again, I want to be very careful about what the text clearly says and, and maybe some suppositions I build around the text. But I think that there's at least a suggestion in the text that Jesus had already on an earlier occasion forgiven this woman. That, that maybe as he's out doing his public ministry in the streets or in the marketplaces, that he has a conversation with his woman and with eyes full of love as she repents of her sin, as the tears flow down her cheek, as she feels the emptiness and the stain of her sin upon her, he looks at her deeply in the eyes and he says, woman, you're forgiven. And now because she's so grateful for this forgiveness that she's received, that she feels that this burden has been lifted off of her, that there's a stain that's been made white as snow, that, that because now she feels she's really not, the, she, she doesn't have that same dirt upon her mind and her soul and her very being that she had a few moments ago. Because of all that, she's so overcome with thanksgiving that despite her reputation, she walks right in to the bishop's home, you know, this, this man of high religious authority in the community. She barges right in while they're eating dinner. I mean, this isn't normal behavior. She comes right in while they're enjoying dinner, having nice dinner conversation over the table, and she kneels down and she takes what's called here, verse 37, an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. This was the kind of thing that would be handed down from a woman as her inheritance, perhaps even as some type or a portion of a dowry, It would contain expensive, precious oil that would normally never be wasted on the feet. Normally, you would apply this to the head. You would use it as a a thickly perfumed oil. It, It would have been seen as foolish to apply this to the feet, but she comes in, and all she knows is she wants to give thanks to Jesus. She comes in, and she can't walk right up to the table and put it on his head. So what's exposed of Jesus? His feet are exposed. He's laying down at the table and his feet are sort of stretched out behind him. So what does she do? She, she kneels down. She breaks open the flask. And can you imagine how the smell of that precious, expensive, uh, perfumed oil filled the room? And she started anointing, I don't know, perhaps massaging, cleaning the feet of Jesus. And very soon, um, she begins to weep. She did this so personally. If you look at verses 37 and 38, there is a personal pronoun used of the woman five times. She three times and her twice, just in two verses. In two verses, it's she, 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 her, her, her. The emphasis is on her doing this for Jesus. Her, this one individual woman. And it was for her to Jesus. It wasn't for the disciples in general. It wasn't for this uh, religious leader, the Pharisee. It was from her to Jesus. A very personal act that, that she wanted to do it for him. Jesus, I'm doing this for you. And verse 38 says, 
that she stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. You can imagine, there she is, just so filled with love and appreciation of Jesus, so free because she knows she's a different woman having received that gift of forgiveness. I mean, look, she knew that at least there was one man in that community who didn't look at her that way. She couldn't walk down the streets without people looking at her. We know what that woman's all about, don't we? Jesus didn't look at her that way. And when he looked into her eyes and said, you are forgiven, she's so grateful. The tears are flowing down her face. And before long, she's bathing his feet in her tears. You've cried that much at times, haven't you? And then what does she do? I I can almost not believe what she did next. It says there in verse 38 that it says that she began to wash his feet with her tears and that also she used her hair in this. It says that she wiped them with the hair of her head. Do you understand what she did in a conservative Jewish community? She let down her hair. You don't do that. That's that's almost playing into the stereotype, isn't it? Oh, she's, she's a... She's an improper woman. She let down her hair. But she can't. His feet are soaked. She's got to wipe them with something. So she lets down her hair. She mats it. She's just weeping. What a scene. I don't think you can look at this scene without being deeply touched by this woman's love for Jesus. And by honestly, or I'll just speak for myself, being a little ashamed about my love for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this. Oh, for more of this love. If I might only pray one prayer this morning, I think it should be that the flaming torch of the love of Jesus should be brought into every one of our hearts and that our passions should be set ablaze with love to Him. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me here this evening. The the Christian life should not be founded upon emotional displays. The Christian life should be founded upon that absolute concrete, that, that unbelievably deep and secure granite foundation of God's Word and God's truth. But there's something wrong with our relationship with Jesus if it's unemotional. If we're like a, you know, stoic, in the old Star Trek, there's a Dr. Spock, you know, you don't show any, you, you, oh, you appreciate all the, the, uh, the doctrines and everything, but, you know, you approach them like a scientist, a, a delights in something. Look, there is such a beautiful and powerful and appropriate place for us to be touched in the deepest parts of our emotion for Jesus. And you do understand, don't you? I'm not saying for a moment that this is the foundation of our Christian life. But it's a part of it. Maybe a prayer you pray tonight goes something like this. Lord, would you stir me appropriately with love for you? I'm not here to try to create it in myself. Come on, what are we going to do? I'll sit here. Okay, let's all cry for Jesus right now. Come on now. Bear down. Think of onions or something like that. I don't know. Things like that are just, but, but just say, Jesus, 
I don't want to reject it when you want to stir me in the deepest part of my soul. So I, I just want to be open to that, Jesus. Now, I want you to think, as you picture this scene in your mind, have you pictured it? Can you imagine how unbelievably awkward this situation is? All the conversation at the dinner table has stopped, hasn't it? They're listening to the woman sob convulsively. They're like, ahem, what's going on here? My, now this is inappropriate, isn't it? You know, and everybody's wondering what the host, the Pharisee, is going to say. And everybody's wondering what Jesus is going to say. And the tension is just building. And in my mind's eye, if I'm directing this like a movie, I'm putting Jesus there. And I'm just letting him let the tension build for a while. He's like, this is good. This is nice. Let's let the tension build up for a little bit. I mean, look at it right here in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. Did he say it out loud? No, he said it to himself. Everybody's quiet. Nobody says a thing. It's too awkward. He spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Now look at this. It's powerful. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Isn't that powerful? First of all, it's powerful to Simon's thinking that Jesus knew. Jesus could, could hear. He could, he could see Simon's thoughts. And it doesn't have to be that he was drawing on his divine resources to do so. He, he could have been so in flow with the Spirit of God that the Holy Spirit gave him a unique gift, a word of knowledge or word of wisdom at that moment. And, and he knew what Simon was thinking. He was thinking that if Jesus really were a prophet, he would know that it was such a sinner touching him. And so what does Jesus do? He lets the tension build and build and build until finally Jesus kind of clears his throat. <clears throat> hey, Simon, um, I have something to say to you. Everybody's like, oh, good. Somebody finally said something. And so what does Simon say? Simon says, okay, say on. Verse 41. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay with which to repay him, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Very simple story, isn't it? A man has two creditors. One owes him a lot, one owes him a little. And what does he do? He says, I forgive both of you. Now, Simon, you tell me which one of them are going to love them most. Can you imagine how the wheels were turning in Simon's head? He goes, this is a trap. I know this is a trap. I know who the, the person in the story is with the great big debt. I know that that's that sinful woman. I know that. Who's the woman with, the, who's the other person in the story that has the little debt? Who is it? Who is it? You know, he's thinking, he's thinking, he's trying to figure it out. Look at his response. It's very powerful here in verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose, now by the way, I love that, verse 42, or verse 43, I mean, I suppose, it's like he's stalling. It's like, well, I know you're trapping me, Jesus, but I'm powerless to stop this. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Simon's just thinking, I know it. I am so jacked up now. Lay it on me, Jesus. Verse 44. Ladies and gentlemen, this is so powerful. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, 
do you see this woman? Let's just stop right there. I'll go on in a moment. But do you see what he says in verse 44? Do you see this woman? Not this sinner. Not this woman of easy virtue. Not this notorious person in the community. Do you see this woman? Simon, look at her. You haven't seen her for ages. Oh, you've noticed her on the streets of your city. But every time you see her, you think you got her all figured out. And you've rejected her. You've categorized her. You've looked past her for so long. Simon, I'm telling you now, look at her. Look at this woman. And there he looks at her. And he sees her tear-streaked face. He sees the disheveled hair. He sees more than anything the look of surpassing peace and contentment on her face. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Do you see this woman? You see just some notorious sinner. I see her love. I see her devotion. And I know why she loves so much. She loves so much because she has been forgiven much. Now, do you see now? Do you see why I believe that Jesus had already forgiven this woman? Because Jesus said her demonstration of love was the product of having been forgiven so much. So I believe that Jesus, on a prior occasion, maybe just a few minutes before, I don't know, but before he entered into Simon's home, he had already pronounced that woman forgiven. And now, out of this great gratitude of love, having such a free heart, such a clean heart, just knowing, this man forgave me when nothing could cleanse me. I love him so much. Simon the Pharisee did not see that woman as she was. What was she? She was a humble sinner seeking and receiving forgiveness and pouring out love for Jesus. He just saw her as she had been, and that was a notorious sin, sinner. Let me read to you something from G. Campbell Morgan. He says, It is not easy for us to blot out a past and to free ourselves from all prejudice resulting from our knowledge of that past. Yet that is exactly what the Lord does. And He does so not unrighteously, but righteously. He knows the power of His own grace and that it completely cancels the past and gives its own beauty to the soul. I think that there could be some woman hearing this today and you feel so stained by a past. It's hard for you to believe that Jesus could really forgive you and take your sins which were as bright as scarlet and make them white as snow. But He can. He does. And of course, that, that offer goes for men here too. But isn't it beautiful how Jesus extended it towards the woman in this circumstance? 
She was forgiven much. She loved much. Now, I don't want anybody here to think that if you want to love Jesus, the key to it is go out and sinning more so that he can forgive you more, so that you can love him more. How about this? Why not just ask him to open your eyes on how much you already need to be forgiven for right here, right now? You'll love him more right already. Verse 48. All right, we're not done with our scene. The camera has not faded out yet. Verse 48. Then he said to her, that's Jesus. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a beautiful word. Your sins are forgiven. Now, you've already heard me say that I thought that Jesus had already forgiven her sins. She came in to wash and anoint his feet as a demonstration of love for having already been forgiven. But you say, aha, it looks like Jesus forgives her here now. No, this is what I think Jesus was doing. I think Jesus did this to publicly pronounce her as forgiven. It's almost as if he looks into her eyes and he says, you and I both know that you're forgiven, dear woman. But you know who doesn't know it? This Pharisee cat right over here. He doesn't know it. So I'm going to announce it to everybody. So everybody knows it so that you can hear it again from my lips. What was once said privately, now I'll say it publicly. Your sins are forgiven. For some of you, it's hard for you to believe that. You've sinned in ways that you'd be terrified if the people around you right now knew about it. And you wonder if you can really be forgiven. You can be forgiven righteously in view of what Jesus did on the cross. It's because Jesus bore the guilt and the pain of your sin that you can be forgiven. So Jesus told her, go in peace. I I bet she didn't like hearing that word go. Jesus, can't I just stay here at your feet all day long? No, go, but go in peace. You're forgiven. That's my fervent wish. Everybody here tonight who goes, we're not done yet, but when it's time to go, that you would go in peace, knowing that you're truly forgiven, and that you would demonstrate a radical, beautiful, passionate love for Jesus in light of how much he's forgiven you for. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love this woman enough to deal with her, to forgive her, to receive her extravagant outpouring of worship, of adoration. Jesus, I I pray that Whatever extent people here tonight need to, need to first of all, receive your forgiveness. Lord, help them to do it. But Lord, I'm sure that there's plenty of people here tonight. Lord, they are forgiven. They just don't believe it. Won't you please work in a powerful way so that they can believe it. And that we can go in peace. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.